Hey everyone, uh, before we start this episode, I just wanted to acknowledge that, um, you know, given the current situation of social media and the protests, I wanted to acknowledge that before getting into this week's episode. Uh, there's links to donations and how you can help um, in the bio of this week's podcast. And acknowledge that as a white man, as a white man with privilege, I hope to have this conversation in the future, have my thoughts out about some of it on Monday. You know, I've been thinking about this a lot in terms of what does my allyship look like. Um, it's not enough to just be a silent ally. You have to be an outspoken ally. Um, and, you know, I, I thought about whether or not to post this today at all um, just because of the current dynamic. But I want to keep on that consistent schedule. And, um, yeah, those are just kind of my thoughts at 10 p.m. the night the the night before uploading it and definitely wanted to acknowledge that give space for it um but also just you know not keep this movement silent either and uh, i hope you enjoy this week's episode i hope to have real conversations with members of you know black lives matter or other organizations in the future about you know what's exactly happening to black men black women in america and the state of our society and so um yeah, just wanted to acknowledge it before we get into this week's episode, but I hope you enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Imperfect, where we discuss masculinity and manhood more intentionally and purposefully. On this episode, I have Jordan Gross. Jordan is a Northwestern and Kellogg School of Management graduate, a startup founder, a two-times TEDx speaker, and a number one best-selling author. His new book, The Journey to Cloud Nine, provides a new approach to the personal development world by using fictional storytelling to reveal some of the life's most meaningful principles. Jordan has been blazing new trails for people around the world, and he cannot wait to share this with all of you. You can check out for this book on LinkedIn and on Amazon. On this episode, him and I actually go into great detail about fraternities and what those look like and how they can affect the male ego, bravado, performance, identity, and uh, much, much more. I've always been fascinated by the topic of fraternities, you know, I've always kind of had this judgment of them um, for being kind of all bad. And I know that they're not all bad. It's just like maybe this point of jealousy or maybe this point of um, not really understanding what they are. And Jordan's based in the state, so there's a bit of a difference there. But I really wanted to discuss with him what that difference looked like and uh, how it might manifest itself in the definition of masculinity and manhood. So we'll just get into the episode now and I really hope you enjoy it. Okay, everyone, I have Jordan here with me. And like usual, we're going to start off with the question, if you were to have anyone over for dinner, dead or alive, who would it be and what would you cook for them? So my grandfather passed away from Alzheimer's and I think it would be really nice to have a conversation with him, having seen him, with him sort of realizing the person I've become over the last like 10 years because he was diagnosed about... 10 years ago, he passed away five years later. So when I was 15 to 20, when he passed away was when I really became the person who I am now. He knew like the kid version of Jordan. So that would be a really cool conversation to have to uh, not only for him to learn about me, but for this mature, more mature version of myself that I am now to learn about him and ask him questions and understand him more. Because really what I remember of him is, is also just from that immature version of myself and, and what I know from, you know, my parents and, and my grandma. And so in terms of what you would talk about with him and, and, and in terms of your life, what would you want to highlight the most? What would you most want to learn from him? So he was a very quiet man. He was one of those people who didn't often speak, but when... He did speak. His words had great magnitude to them. And he was a leader. He had his own law firm and, and he did the same thing for a long time. So I would like to, to sort of integrate things that I'm learning about now with how he lived his life, right? Because I wrote a, a piece recently about my grandma, his wife, who's still alive. She's 90 years old. And it's called How to Live a Meaningful Life from a 90 year old who's never read a self-help book. 
I don't think my grandpa ever read anything personal development related either. So I would want to know just from them, from him, like how, how did he become a, a good person? How did he live the life that he wanted to live, right? Without, you know, the literature and articles and podcasts and videos that we have access to now. I think that would be a really cool conversation. And then did you mention yet, like what I would cook for him? Did you say that? Oh, yes. But what would you cook for him? Yeah, I forgot to, forgot that part. I don't know if I would cook it, but when I was younger, one of my fondest memories of him is we'd always get Chinese food and he would put spare ribs on my plate and I would eat the rib and then I would toss the, just the bone onto his plate. So I would definitely eat ribs with him and toss some bones on his plate. Yeah, man. Ribs are a fantastic meal at any time of the year. It doesn't matter. People always like link barbecue, obviously, to summer, but I could go for ribs any time of the day. Yeah, ribs are good, especially a nice fall off the bone, juicy town. I find it really interesting there how you highlighted the fact that you'd want to know what it was like to grow up without the access to information that we kind of have. And really, like even 30 years ago, you could go back and say almost the same thing. Like obviously there was radio, but there wasn't content in the way that we currently have it. And so what do you think of the idea of you know, just growing as an individual without all the help, like how much respect for that do you have since that was something that you highlighted there? Yeah. So for me that like, that's more of my mindset and and that's, I believe that simplicity is, is our truest, you know, gift. So even two, like two specific examples, one, I'm trying to do as, as little affiliate marketing and online programs and courses and all that stuff related to my book launch over the next couple of months and and years as possible. Like I want to do human connection. I want to talk to people about it. I want it to spread through word of mouth. So that's always been my go-to, my forte. And the other thing was in in relation to the time we're talking now, right? So if people are listening to this five years from now and they're listening to, to Luke's podcast here, we're chatting in the midst of the most unprecedented times our world has ever seen, right? With the outbreak of coronavirus. And somebody recently called me up on the phone and was just like, how do we create your lemonade stand? First, I was like, what the heck does that mean? But the story with the lemonade stand is when I was seven years old, 12 days after 9-11. And it was a weekend and my friends and I, were not doing much, but for me, I I noticed that things were off and people were off and I was a young kid, but I didn't like seeing people sad. So I lived in New York. So people were really sad, really affected by the tragedy. And what I did with my friends was we created a lemonade stand. And during this time of tremendous devastation, we did something to brighten up our neighborhood, to put smiles on people's faces to connect with one another and connect with the community. But when I got this phone call, it was not just how do we build the lemonade stand because, you know, you go build the lemonade stand. But in this coronavirus, the one thing you can't do is go build a lemonade stand and physically connect with people and be near people and sell things on the street, right? So it was about how do we impact other individuals right now? How do we share gratitude? How do we express solidarity? when you can't literally link arms and share that message, right? So I, I kind of put on my 1600s detective hat and I, I said, you know, how would people spread a message of joy and positivity right now if this were back in the 1600s? And it just, it totally transformed my mind to, to think like the way that we need to spread information without access to technology is, is simply through like really simplistic means, right? So I had this idea to draw something on a piece of paper and then stick it up in your window so that people walking by could see it. The goal was for us to express gratitude for frontline workers, nurses, doctors, grocery workers who are walking by so they could see the gratitude symbol in in windows of people. It was just ideas like that. That's like, wow, they really had to, like, can you imagine how much slower things spread? Like you know, it's a terrible time to use this word, but things going viral, that didn't happen back then, right? So you can have a video or social media campaigns, you know, get shared as quickly as you can imagine if it has the right clout behind it. 
But um, back in, in, in times when we didn't have that kind of access, the, the main quality, the, the thing that I'm trying to get at most is that we need a lot more patience. And that's something that I remember my grandpa having a lot of was patience. Yeah, no, I totally agree. It is interesting how you see like almost a whole generation of us has been able to access things so quickly that patient, we we aren't raised to be patient because our phones and technology take that patience away. But I really wanted to go back into your journey of who you are and how you became uh, who you are today. You know, you said you want to express it to your grandpa. So I think it'd be really interesting to kind of take you through an angle of almost like what would you communicate to your grandpa right now in terms of how you got to where you are, your journey, and how you became the man that you are today? Yeah, this is really cool. So I like talk to him based off of like where where I don't think he he really knew who I was anymore. So let's just go back to high school and, and he knew me. I was a little a curious kid. He he knew me when I was I was heavy in my early days and he knew me when I was you know, good athlete, good soccer goalie, got good grades in school, did all that good stuff. But he really, he, he didn't get to see high school and beyond, right? So what I would say is, is basically from, from high school years to like the middle of my college experience, I was on the hamster wheel. I was just doing what people told me I should be doing. I was playing soccer. I was getting good grades. I was getting good internships. Socially, I, I was, you know, trying to make a lot of friends. I joined a fraternity and I was basically just uh, following this trek of what you would expect a guy in his 20s to be doing, right? Investment banking and finance and, and sports and, and partying and drinking, right? So grandpa, that was me for a little bit. And I, I tried my hardest to deviate a little bit because as you would know, I always had this, you know, that, that lemonade stand kid within me, but I didn't let it fully shine until after college. So there were moments where I, I did this certificate in civic engagement where every Friday I did community service hours for two years in college. And I did this capstone project where I worked with disabled individuals who live on their own and I, I helped promote their business. So there was always, always these like glimmers of I'm going to do something different, something to impact people, impact the community. But I ended up reverting back to old ways to, to norm habits to, to the traditional path. So when I was a senior in college, I was kind of deciding what I wanted to do next. And I ended up choosing to do an extra year. I did a master's program in management studies. And that was the year where it wasn't so academically rigorous. I had a lot of opportunity to explore. And I started reading. I started listening to podcasts. I had started my own charity organization in my grandfather's memory. and. I wanted to brush up on my leadership skills. So I, I did this management master's program at Northwestern and I, I dipped my toes into the entrepreneurial world and being around so many entrepreneurs, I, I've started to notice, you know, how big passion is and not focusing on money and, and doing things more aligned with fulfillment and joy and what, you know, what's going to wake you up in the morning and not make you miserable. So what happened was I, I started my own startup endeavor and it was in the food business, the food and restaurant. And beverage space. So again, I kind of had this choice, like, do I go startup route or do I take a job? And I decided to take a job and the job was in the restaurant world. So I thought I did a great, you know, I thought it was great that I was going to do something different than everybody else and start in something I really loved early. But, you know, looking back, I, I did it because it was a big salary. It was a big time name. It was a really prestigious program. And yeah, it just wasn't the right reason. So within four months, I, I realized that it wasn't for me and I quit. And then after I quit, I had to figure out what I was going to do next. And I'd been writing this, these reflections about my morning routine and everything that I listened to. I always wrote stories about it. I wrote my own realizations in a Word document and I had like all these pages about it. So I thought in order to just, you know, be occupied while I was looking for a new job, I would just come out with this book. So I self-published my first book, January 2018. And then I immersed myself in what to do when you come out with the book. So I did speaking and more writing. And then, um, yeah, I did that for about a year. And then it was, okay, do I double down? Do I write a new book? Do I go back to the corporate world and have some stability? 
And I was going to do that, but I had this new concept, this cloud nine concept. So I ended up writing another book. I did more coaching. I, I did more speaking. And uh, yeah, that's been for the last year. So this second book came out in February of, of 2020. And I'm promoting that, but thinking about the next thing, right? How can I how can I make an impact for other people? How can I get them to think differently? How can I get them to live the life of their dreams without just telling them what to do? I want you to create the life of your dreams. So that's what I've been up to. It's just really this exploration into how do we live the most meaningful life possible and then just guiding people and, and being a resource if people want to live that kind of life. Yeah. Near the beginning of that story, you or your, you know, the talk of your life journey, you mentioned how you were kind of on the hamster wheel and you felt like kind of a typical guy. What was the moment or were there any key moments in your life where you realized that you didn't want to be the so on like the so and so typical guy? Like was there any moment that you're like, this isn't what I want? I don't want to be this. I'm going to take advantage of these things. Like writing is seen as maybe not the most masculine thing, especially if it's about your life. So kind of, can you touch on that a bit? So, so ongoing, it was this, you know, it's, it's sort of like a metaphor looking back. Thursday nights in college were like a, a big party night, right? Go out on Thursdays and then Fridays, it was kind of like keep the party going, right? So you wake up and, and everybody in, in my fraternity would start drinking and, and partying, right? I said that I did that civic engagement certificate program. So whereas everybody else was, you know, doing their own thing and, and partying and, you know, not really contributing to society in any beneficial way, I was trekking to a nursing home or I was going to uh, an orphanage or I was going to a different event where I learned about how to engage with the community better. You know, maybe at the time I would, I wanted to like maybe party and go with my friends, but looking back, it was like, that was that in the back of my mind, I was very different. Sure. I, I tried to assimilate as much as possible, but there was always a little bit of me that said like, I, I still am different. I know that I am. So that's the first metaphor. The, the second one was kind of having the realization that I wanted to change I spent four months studying abroad my junior year of college. It was one of the greatest experiences I've ever had in terms of perspective and, and traveling the world and, and having such a fun time. But when I came back, I said, you know, when this trip is over, it's going to be about impact because it had nothing to do with impact on the world. And then, uh, you know, just looking back as far as I can go, there were, like I keep saying, these, these signs, these hints that I was super different. You know, I, I was the, I was on the soccer team and I had a great time with my soccer buddies, but I was the captain of the team. So I was the captain, which meant I was, you know, lining up everybody's bags and I was making sure we were in order. And I was telling everybody to listen to coach when they were goofing off. Right. So I, I was that kind of guy, but at the same time, I would still, you know, do my own goofing off. I was not trying to be that much different. Right. It was ultimately, you know, and I really had the courage it was after that that master's program to go into the restaurant world. It gave me a year to like kind of differentiate my path in that everybody was going into their jobs, right? Everybody who was like me was going into their corporate jobs, starting to make a lot of money already, working crazy hours. Whether they liked it or not, I'm not really sure. But I was doing this master's program, right? And I think when I was in that program, I got more comfortable with with who I was and, and taking a different route. Because doing the master's program was already a different route. Yeah. And so it's, it's funny that you said, where did you go on exchange, by the way? I went to Prague. Okay, cool. It's, it's interesting because when I was on, a, I went on exchange to Japan and I lived there for four months and it was in Japan that I was like, I had the idea for this podcast. Like it was about, I guess, just over a year ago and I was solo traveling and I was just like, there's so many things I want to do in my life. And one of them is like a clothing line. One of them is, was this podcast, but it was interesting that when I came back and I finally graduated school, it was like, I'm going to do the podcast because this is something that I want to do. It's a lot of my alone time. It's not just when I'm on, in Japan, but it's a lot of the alone time I spend with myself and going deep into who I am and what I want. That's when I come up with the things I want to do in my life. But kind of going back to the time in your university, you know, we we talked a little bit about fraternities. And that's really the angle that I wanted to take with you because, you know, in my time at university, I always gave 
frats a bad rap. Like I was like, I don't like them. I think they're toxic. Obviously there's there's more than one angle to it. I don't want to paint all frats with one brush, you know, but I really want to go kind of into that because we, we hear of, the, of it being a brotherhood, but at the same time, a lot of it doesn't really feel like you were comfortable or not that you weren't comfortable, but you wanted to pursue things beyond just the frat. And I'm not sure how that was or or if that was made you were made to feel different in that. But why don't you kind of touch on on a little bit of the frat culture and then we can go deeper into it. Yeah. So for for my experience, it was all about the social and the camaraderie aspect and, and the brotherhood, honestly. These are my still some of my best friends in the world, right? So it was like-minded individuals in the way that we were raised, you know, we were in the way that we viewed not so much what we wanted to do for the world, but more so like the experience we wanted to have in college, get by with good grades, we wanted to get good jobs, and we wanted to talk about, you know, things that we were interested in together, and we wanted, you know, enjoy our time together. So that was what it was all about, but it was just a social club, really. So when you're in a fraternity, when you're in my frat, it was like, uh, you know, you start at the bottom of the totem pole, you're, you're a pledge, you're pledging, and, and you have to gain everybody's respect, right? As me, somebody with very high intelligence, I was individually assessing every person, right? And I never wanted to do anything that I believed would not give me respect from somebody else in the front. So if there was somebody who, you know, if I was doing community service, if that was going to piss them off, then that would be like a, a slap on the wrist for me, right? And I wouldn't gain that person's respect. Luckily, there wasn't. But there were other things that, you know, maybe I wanted to do that I couldn't at the time, because it was going to be frowned upon. Not that I really wanted to, but if I would have written a book, I think it would have gotten, you know, bashed to pieces as opposed to supported, especially I was the lowest man on the totem pole. That that's that's how the culture was. And maybe it's a bit of an act at first, just you know, because it's the pledging process and you're getting initiated into everything. But yeah, so so then basically you move up the totem pole and then you have your your second year. Now you're you're sort of established, but you're still trying to gain the respect of the people who are older than you. You're also now looked at as a role model to the first years who are coming in. So you have to be on your best behavior for those people because you want them to act like you because you all kind of act like each other and nobody's really allowed to stand out because then they're not really, you know, then they're an individual as opposed to the group. And then you're, you're a junior and that's when I was abroad. So it didn't really matter. And then when you're a senior, things just kind of don't really matter anymore. And it's kind of like you realize seniors may have been putting on a facade when back when you were a freshman, because it's just things just don't really matter. You know, you're going into the world, you've established three years of amazing relationships, you want the best for the young kids who are coming in. That's that was my perspective, obviously, that's what I wanted for these kids coming in. So it's like this little cycle of realizing like, whoa, this is so serious to oh, it's not as serious to definitely not as serious to this is is, you know, comical at this point. Yeah. I just find it very fascinating, like the whole frat culture. And you kind of touched on it a bit there as you come in, you pledge, there's like initiation. So a lot of the culture that I see isn't the most welcoming. And and it's like, it's almost the same thing where you want to have that social hierarchy. You want to be respected, right? To me, it's a lot kind of like uh, office politics as well. When you're coming in, you're a fresh grad, you you don't want to do anything. You want to gain the respect. So you don't want to stand out too much, but you, you obviously want to stand out enough to be recognized. But one of the things I've always been very fascinated about is just how that makes people feel like as a as a man and as a as an individual. And I think you're obviously in the states so it's a bit different than probably up here in Canada cuz the states kind of more vibe is the one that's shown on on TV and and obviously the more desired culture, but in my time at university I saw that we wanted to become American level fraternity style. Like I think that's the representation we see you as the epitome of that. But I always just thought it was really interesting how like that broy culture came, became desirable. That social hierarchy still was desirable, and and as much as you want to change those things it, from the inside, it becomes part of of you. And it it's almost like as much as that allows you to grow as an individual, it seems to hold you back in a lot of ways too. So I keep using the word comical, right? Because 
you're getting judged, literally judged about how you are as an individual, right? Like you, you're getting assessed constantly to get into a fraternity. Do people like you or not? Strictly based off of personality. It's not really based on like potential career goals or values or anything like that. It's like, did you interact well while you were at a social gathering? And maybe that's not the best place for people to interact. Maybe they need a little bit more of a private arena, but you don't really get that opportunity. So, so it's not conducive to introverts, really, or, or just people who are socially anxious, maybe, or people who are shy. So, so that's one thing. The other thing is kind of like you're getting judged based on the, the, the quality of relationships you can make with the opposite sex. You're getting judged based off of how much you can drink. You're getting judged based off of, you know, if you're funny, if you like, do you use drugs? Do you, what, like, what kind of alcohol do you drink? You know, like, and then you kind of separate into different categories, right? And there are different things that put emphasis on different, different types of, of people. So it's wild to, to think that that's even a thing. But, uh, and then, you know, once you're in, you don't want to stand out for reasons that are going to make you different, right? Especially right away. So as I look back and, and think about it, maybe the right move was to just kind of coyly do things that were different. Maybe the, the best move was to just have these inklings of of social impacts where I went out on a Friday and did it and I didn't make that my persona because that would have alienated me from the rest of my buddies who are, who are my best buddies now so yeah you know it's kind of like the the radical approach versus the gradual approach if you're going to be radical and just try to reinvent the the way that everybody thinks in a certain group it's probably going to lead to a lot of controversy and contention right so doing it bit by bit, kind of doing it at, on an individual basis and still conforming to the social norms because that's why you're there. That might be a good avenue if, if you really want to change while you're in a frat culture. Yeah. And so kind of going back to that idea of the gradual, do you think that one, like I guess the first part of this question is, do you think that fraternities get a bad rap for, for a good reason? And then the second question to follow up, up with that is, do you think that more men in the fraternity actually would be welcoming to that on an individual, like to the differences on an individual level, but as a collective, you buy into this mentality that it's not allowed? Because I often find that there's a lot of groupthink that happens in those type of communities, right? It, it's the same as in a classroom or in the same in um, Twitter. You don't want to say anything super controversial because then people will maybe attack you or, you know, make you feel unsafe. But at the same time, on an individual level, they actually agree with you, but they don't want to look bad as well. Do you think that had anything to do with fraternities? Yeah, definitely. Do they get a bad rap? It depends on the fraternity. Uh, I can't say for everybody. There are a lot of fraternities that place a tremendous emphasis on the philanthropic, philanthropic component. Tremendous good for the world and, and their communities. And, uh, they're, they're trying to make an impact and they're a group of like-minded people who, who really care about others. But like, I'm being honest with you, Luke, like mine was a social club like that. that we didn't do any philanthropy. We really didn't. So yeah, if you're going to give like my group a bad rap, sure. We were great kids and we didn't get into trouble and we we're really respectful to everybody, but we were just trying to have a good time. You know, that was like the motto. We're just trying to have a good time. We weren't really trying to impact the world like I want to. And I think there were other kids, yeah, within my group who, who really want to impact the world. But there is this group think and there is this fear of not being in a safe place. And it's not fear like you'll be physically harmed or, or mentally harmed. It's just like you need to have thick skin. You know, you're going to get roughed around, you get made fun of. And I guess I was more okay with that as I got older. So I just matured. I grew into it like that gradualism I said. You just start to realize who you are and who you want to be. And I think maybe the books that I was reading had to do with it. And maybe the podcasts I was listening to or the videos I was watching. Um, I think they were all little factors that allowed me to more embrace my real and authentic self that made me, you know, it was like what made me different was making me the same. Mm, yeah. No, I think that that what's making me different was making me feel the same. I think I think that's a very true point. And going on to 
the idea that a lot of people have of fraternities, you know, broy culture, like you said, consultancy, finance, but also the idea of like locker room talk and, and snitches don't get uh, stitches get stitches. Did you find that like the locker room talk and the snitches get stitches were kind of overwhelmingly part of the culture? Did you ever feel like that was infringing on any mentality of, of terms of you know, bad behavior. I know, I know you said that you were kind of like super respectful and, and obviously like there's that, but you know, Terry Crews has this great quote that I, that I love is anytime you get five guys in a room together, they do something stupid. Obviously there's, there's a bit of language and gossip that goes on, but did you ever find that those two things that are often like attributed to frats were, were overbearing or overworn? I like that quote by Terry Crews, right? Because it depends on the five people you put together. For me, it was always about adaptability. And if I was in a, a group of, of five and I was one of those five, if the four others were like those locker room talk kind of guys, then I would have to assimilate. If it was, you know, if there was just one personality that was, that was the locker room talk kind of guy, but they were the, the strongest voice. And even if the four of us weren't, then you still have to assimilate, right? You don't want to sort of create such a, a large conflict all the time, right? And speak up, especially if it's, it's private conversation, especially if it's, uh, you know, in a joking matter. That's, that's sometimes the biggest problem, right? So, you know, it's, it's assessing each individual and knowing what you're going to get from each individual, right? And then acting accordingly. So it, it's about having high EQ and understanding how you sort of need to act with each person right so for me like my 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 behavior sort of changed if i was around different people yeah and so i I guess in like you seem like a very naturally high eq kind of guy um how much did that play to your strength in the fraternity obviously some people might have social skills that are much better in terms of you know just connecting on an uh individual level obviously some are more intelligent in terms of like book smarts and whatnot, but still have the social aspect. But how important to you was that EQ side of it? Yeah. So I think EQ, not even just fraternity wise, it allows you, it gives you a really good ability to gravitate toward people who are like-minded and you want to be around, right? If you have good EQ, you're able to, I guess you're just able to pick out people who you don't want to be around quicker. You're able to pick out, you know, little groups of people who you want to come together. And then also as I got older in the frat, uh, having that EQ and sort of being a, a voice of, of calmness and reason and, and respect, it gave me like a, a sort of natural pull to the younger kids who were, you know, get joining the fraternity. People sort of came to me because, you know, I, I was nice and I was uh, not going to haze them or anything like that. Yeah. What are your thoughts on hazing? I guess I like I know it's part of like the culture and a lot of people do it, but like, what are your thoughts on it in terms of like, is there a line that's too far and and whatnot? Because even like I'm a huge sports fan and I've always been curious by it. Right. So there's definitely a line. There's always a line that's too far, you know. And I don't think my hazing ever went too far, and I can't. I won't like divulge any specific stories, but I, I have memories. And the purpose of hazing is for it to be totally breaks down your ego and shows you how human you are. Right. And it also you're doing it with 15 to 20 to to 30 other people. So it's very it's really like a uh, opportunity to get really close and and have some memories with people who you're going to spend the next couple of years with. Right. And they're hopefully going to be lifelong friends. But overall, I think if you do things that put you in in danger physically, mentally, emotionally, Uh, If there's like abuse involved, if there's like other people involved, if there are animals involved, I don't think any of that, if something's going to get you sick, I don't think any of that is fair game. I don't see the benefit of that. But, you know, cleaning up the the fraternity house bathroom, like that's a perspective inducing experience, you know, after a party, we have to go clean up, right? So that's like hazing to me is, is, yeah, you guys go and there's a mess and and you you clean together and you, you play music and you have those memories of all the nasty stuff you saw and, and uh, you clean, right. And, and, you know, probably something you've never done in your life. So experiences more like that. I think, you know, I don't think they're by any means like necessary, but I don't think they're harmful. Mm-hmm. And 
In terms of like, I guess, why a lot of people would join a fraternity in the first place, uh, you know, going into first year university is obviously a very intimidating thing for a lot of young men. They want to be able to find their social footing pretty quickly. But some people might do it for, I guess, maybe negative reasons or or for positive reasons. Kind of like what was your motivation for joining a frat in the first place? So I think it's about navigating uncertainty. And when you're in a new place with new people, you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know if people are going to like you. You don't know if people are going to respond to you. You don't know if you're going to get good grades. You don't know what job you're going to get. You don't know what parties you're going to go to, right? So there's all this uncertainty. And joining a fraternity provides more certainty as to what your college experience is going to look like. So for me, I knew that if I I joined like a, a part of a group, I would be a little bit more confident as to this. These are the people who are going to help me pick my classes. And these are the people who are going to help me with my internship search. And these are the people who are going to tell me what parties to go to. And these are the people who are going to tell me where the good food on campus is. It's like, you know, think about the job search. Like this is your networking strategy. You're going to people who have been there before in order to create an understanding of what's to come, you know? So that, that was a huge motivation. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. And it's the same thing, like by by second and third year, you know exactly what professors not to take just because of your social surroundings. So it would be easier to know that in first year. But I wanted to go on to a point that, uh, I don't know, I feel like we touched on it a bit on this, but I know you touched on it uh, during one of our phone calls. And that was the idea of, you know, this super nice guy aspect of it and being really protective and, and like respectful like that was your that was your thing but you said you could have embraced it more that side of you that showing who you really were what did you mean by that yeah so you know when you're in the the frat culture like i said there are different types of personalities right and i wanted to cement myself as one of these personalities right so i think you could have the the frat guy who wants to make the most money and you have the guy who wants to get with the most girls and you have the guy who wants to uh, get the best grades. Right. So, so you kind of have these like leaders in the particular areas. And for me, it was just like, what do I want people to think of me? And it was always just like, I want people to think that I'm just like the nicest person out there. And uh, that's kind of who I was growing up. That's who I was, um, was just this really nice person, the, the shoulder to cry on, the, the friend, the supporter, the person who people came to for advice. So I, I wanted to take on that role. What I meant by it, I could have done it even more was I could have started to like work on things that further demonstrated that side of my personality. What I mean by that is I didn't do like now, two years after I graduated from college, was the first time I published like a writing piece or did a podcast interview or talked about any of like vulnerability or morning routines or positivity or anything like that. Some people from college are surprised because they're just like, yeah, you're a really nice guy, but I didn't think you were going to write about personal development and self-help. Like that wasn't who you were. I could have made more of an effort to share this, this nice guy personality with others to, to, support maybe some of the other nice guys who thought that that shouldn't be how they were right being a nice guy you know for me it's like you hear the phrase nice guys finish last but like my goal is to help nice guys finish first because that's nice guys do do finish first we're we're definitely first what is your thought on the nice guys finish last uh like slogan or idea because i think it's i think it's utter bullshit myself but i'm curious what since you brought it up yeah so Here's the thing. I think that phrase comes from the fact that nice guys will allow others to step on them or they will appease others because they know that they'll be fine, right? The nice guy is going to be fine. So they want everybody else to be okay. But to me, that's coming in first because the nice guy has such a sense of self-awareness, self-confidence, ability to diffuse situations that the nice guy is finishing in first for whatever situation he is in, allowing others to think that they're finishing first, when in reality, it's really, you know, the nice guy's situation is, is what they want to, to live in, right? You know, in terms of what you want in life, right? If, if, you know, the nice guy might not get the promotion, but that, that's okay. I think 
it's not about, you know, finishing first or finishing last. That's the, the destination, right? It, it comes back to journey versus destination. The nice guy may not get to the destination as quickly or may never get to the destination that societal expectations believe we should get to. But the nice guy is going to enjoy the journey so much more because it's it's a journey that they choose, right? Yeah. What I find interesting is that the nice guy finish last thing almost only applies to situations with women and females. Like it's never nice guys finish last for this other thing. It's always nice guys finish last for this specific girl rather than being like, maybe it's the promotion, maybe it's this other thing. But it, I always find that it's very much it's almost like the friend zone where it's like, oh, she friend zoned me. And it's like, well, did you ever ask her out? No. Okay. Then maybe you didn't finish last because you're a nice guy. You didn't finish last because you didn't ask. And if you'd asked, maybe she would have said yes. But I just feel like it's very like almost a, a victim mentality that the whole nice guys finish last thing sometimes because of just, you think you're owed something that maybe other people may see in you certain skills, but maybe they don't see like, if it's for a promotion, they don't see the management skills. If it's for a girl, maybe they just don't see the compatibility long-term, you know, skills. So I always find that that quote very interesting. Yeah. If you're saying it about yourself, then I see what you're saying. But if others are saying it about you, that's, that's the route I was taking. Okay. Yeah. If you're saying it about yourself, then yeah, it's, it's sort of like a poor pitiful me attitude, but that's, that's like the worst attitude you can have. Yeah, I know a lot of people that say it about themselves. So, or or like you know, maybe not anymore. But when it first came out, they'd always say it about themselves. I probably I probably said it about myself too because I remember there was a YouTuber Ryan Higa that uh, made a song about it or something. I'm like, yeah, I finish last all the time. Girls don't like me, and it's like, well, I've never really asked out a girl either. So maybe that's probably it. But that was way back when. But anyways, uh, kind of just to to make this thing come full circle, I, I wanted to definitely follow up with some of the last questions regarding you know, your life, the advice that you hear all the time, and then um, the advice that you want to pass down to other people. And so the last one of the last questions I always ask is what is one piece of advice that your father or an important male figure gave you that you live by every day? So it wasn't what he said, it was his actions, right? To me, a lot of the time actions are so much stronger than, than words that people can say to you, right? Actions speak louder than words. It's that simple, but I truly believe in that a lot of the time. And it was a situation in which my dad was, I was ready to quit my job. And it was the night before I was going to quit. And I told my parents and my dad did not want me to. And he was telling me that I had stability. I had a prestigious title. I, you know, look at all that I had achieved already. I look at all the money coming in, look at the, the apartment I was living in, all, all this stuff, you know, making his case because he didn't want to see me face uncertainty. He didn't want to see me have instability. We were disagreeing. He told me not to quit. And it was one of the first times I remember just defying his orders because I quit. And then the next day when I said that I was going to write a book, he wasn't mad about me quitting. He wasn't holding a grudge. He wasn't giving me the cold shoulder. But when I said I was going to write a book, I think the first thing that came out of his mouth was, how are we going to make you a New York Times bestseller, right? So when you're trying to impart wisdom onto another person, at first, you can be somebody of, of influence and you try to influence their decisions based on your own experiences, right? And you try to warn them and guide them in a direction that you want them to go in. But then once the person makes the decision, it's an immediate flip of the switch from guide to supporter to number one fan, right? Because you, you want this person to succeed in whatever they do. And you, you don't have a time machine to go back and get that person to make a different decision. So the second I made my decision to, to write a book, my dad totally flipped the switch from trying to be a guide to being my number one supporter. So in your own life, you know, think about that for yourself, right? When you make, when you're about to make a decision, how, how are you guiding the life that you're going to live? But then when you actually choose, be your own number one supporter, you know, don't look back with regret or fear or anything like that. So when you're trying to help other people, 
try to guide, but then when they make a decision, be the number one supporter, be that voice of, of positivity and, and optimism and, and like be a cheerleader for others. So that's huge. That's huge, you know, for yourself and when you're trying to help other people. Yeah, I love that. It's so true. Like obviously people will give you advice, but then you know, maybe the second you don't take it, you're so worried that they're not going to support you anymore. But if their first words are, how are we going to make you the best or a New York Times bestseller? Like that's all the encouragement you ever need really to be like, okay, maybe this was the right decision, but they wanted to protect me. And they were giving me the advice that they knew best, but now they see that I didn't take that. And so they, there's no point being reactive or I guess angry about it. It's time to to take the next step. So that even just shows to me how much your father was like an optimist and so much forward thinking, not thinking in the past. But uh, the second last question I always ask is, what is one piece of advice that you wish your father gave you? I'll say this. I wish somebody, whether it was my dad or a coach or anybody, I wish somebody said that quitting was okay. I wish that you learned from an earlier age that quitting is okay because you learn to never quit, right? You really learn to never quit. But if you're doing something that does not fulfill you if you're just never quitting to fulfill that phrase of never quitting then you're not doing it for the right reasons so you know you get this phrase sort of pounded into your mind from a young age to never quit when in reality if what you're doing doesn't align with your values then you should quit and you should try something else yeah totally agree and i think that's something that i like that's a luxury that we have in our generation that you know even our parents and our grandparents didn't have because as you went talked about earlier there wasn't all that those that many options of what else they could do they still had to provide financially for their family and i just had this conversation yesterday actually with another guest about how that is it seems to be a luxury that we have as a generation is that there's more things to find passion in that you know our parents and and that couldn't so it kind of relates to what we just talked about with your dad is you know once you quit you have to react and respond and then the last question I always ask is, what is that one piece of advice that you want to pass down to future generations or your future kids? So one of my favorite quotes is by Ed Milet. And he says that somebody once told him the definition of hell. And it's that on his last day on this earth, the person who he became will meet the person he could have become. And those two people are total strangers. But somebody also once told him the definition of heaven. And it's that on his last day on this earth, the person who he became will meet the person he could have become. And those two people are identical twins. So I think about that all the time. And as you guys let that sink in and you think about it for a second, it's about intentionality in every decision, every choice you're making in your life, right? And you constantly want to make the choices that are going to make those two people at the end of your life, who you became versus who you could have become, you want to bridge the gap as much as possible, right? By making the decisions that are based on you, your heart, your gut, your intuition, and following those feelings, those those rationales, as opposed to just what everybody else thinks, because you could have become somebody so different if you would have done what what you thought. Yeah. I'm actually beaming right now because I had another guest, Clay Smelter, who actually gave the exact same answer. And yeah, do you know Clay? Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah, he's he gave the exact same answer. And I when he when we first connected, he told me that. And I'm like, holy shit, like I love that. That's like that's one of the best things I've ever heard in my life. And so I think it's so true. The idea that we become who we were meant to become. I think it's such a cool image in my head. And the first time he explained it to me was awesome. And that's why I'm like, got this smile on my face right now. This, that's so cool how that it all comes fully connects. I'm glad that we had that same quote. It's really, that's great for your, for your listeners. It's, it's the first one that's been the same uh, idea and quote. Like, so I think out of all my guests so far, I've had uh, like 20 or 21 different book suggestions and none of them have overlapped. But that quote is the first thing that I've seen that's overlapped between two guests. So I love that. It makes me really happy. <laughs> but now to, to kind of close it off, I always want to let my guests share, you know, what you got going on in your life. You know, you've talked about, I think two books now, uh, briefly on this podcast. I know you said you were working towards another, you got medium, you've had a TEDx talk, kind of share a little bit about what you got going on in your life right now. Yeah. So I appreciate you allowing me to share. And I know you give a couple of minutes, but I'll, I'll be really brief. My book, the journey to cloud nine and everything I'm going to be doing moving forward, like book wise 
is personal development and self-help, but through the lens of creative storytelling and fiction, right? So I put out this book, it's totally made up, even though I did all of the research, I did hundreds of interviews, came up with some really good takeaways, but I didn't want to just give it out, you know, as a form of self-help advice. I wanted to create this really fun, magical story to get you to live the life of your dreams. So it's a parable in that aspect or an allegory uh, or a fable, you know, like The Alchemist or a book like Robin Sharma's, you know, 5am club. So I just did that. I wrote a parable about navigating uncertainty recently. So especially with what's going on, I've been writing a lot more. And the, the main thing I'll say is that if you want to be in touch about anything, you can find me on LinkedIn. It's just Jordan Gross on LinkedIn. Or you can go to my website, journeytocloud9.com, all spelled out and find out more. This is a great opportunity to really just step into who you really are, right? You got a community of people um, who are listening, who have been guests on here, who are zero judgment. I think that's the big, that's the big indicator for me uh, is the sign of somebody whose masculinity doesn't get in the way of the person that they truly are is zero judgment. That's huge for me. And I, I realized that as a guest of the show. So uh, thank you for having me on. I'm, I'm super grateful. Yeah, thank you for so much for being here. I love taking the fraternity angle with you and, and definitely the idea of, of speaking to your grandfather at the beginning. I thought that was really cool. I always love to make it unique to a little bit unique to, to my guest. And so like that was something that we didn't even discuss kind of coming on. So I appreciate you kind of riding through it. But uh, yeah, thank you so much for coming out. I, there were so many quotes that you said uh, during this time that I, I wrote down, you know, simplicity is our truest gift. I think that one was a huge one. And then also the idea of navigating uncertainty. I think those were the two biggest takeaways for me, but uh, I hope my guests take out just as much, if not more. I agree, man. I hope so. And please be in touch if you, if you or your guests need anything, I'm uh, just a LinkedIn message away. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to this week's episode of Imperfect with your host, Luke West. You can find Jordan on LinkedIn at Jordan Gross. You can also find his book, The Journey to Cloud9, on Amazon. And right now, it's actually only 99 cents on Kindle. Uh, I'll include a link to that in the description below, which you can find. I'll include a link to his LinkedIn in the description below as well. In the description, you can also find my Instagram, The Imperfect Pod, where you can actually connect with me and see some behind the scenes footage for this episode. We actually recorded it over video, so you'll be able to see some of the conversation that we had in a more personal way there. Thanks again to Matt McClelland for editing this episode. And please, if you if you enjoyed it, uh, leave a review on iTunes. Uh, message me. I'm always down for a conversation with those who listened and looking really to expand my following in my community. So uh, if you've listened to this, please let me know. Shoot me a message. Shoot me a text. I hope everyone had a lovely weekend. Cheers.